privilege to be here. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, Christ is King Church, for allowing us to bring the word of the Lord here today and celebrate what God is doing in our respective ministries around the country and around the world. If you have your Bibles, open with me this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Today I'm privileged to talk about the topic reforming time stewardship. Reforming time stewardship. I've got about 31 slides and I've got about 30 minutes. So that gives me about one minute per slide if I move right through that. And I don't want you to miss out on anything, so I put a QR code up here. If you take your phone and you put it in camera mode and then point the camera towards the QR code, it'll take you to our website. You can download these PowerPoints, these slides, and just make sure that you store it uh, to your camera because once the QR code is passed and you don't store it, then you'll have to catch me afterwards and I can let you have the QR code again. So leave it up there for just a little bit while I tell the story so everybody can get that, uh, the, the points down. This yuppie had more money than he knew what to spend it on, so he decided that he was going to go down and buy himself the best car that money could buy. He had chosen to buy a BMW, <coughs> so he went down to the BMW dealership, <coughs> and there, walks into the, the showroom, and right there at the center of the showroom is this pristine, beautiful, gorgeous four-door sedan. He must have been my age, as opposed to a two-door uh, car, but he bought this four-door uh, sedan or looked at this four-door sedan. He walked around it, beautiful paint. The, the, the tires were immaculate. He opened up the door. He sat inside of there. He could just feel the plushness of the, of the leather. He, he could smell the new car smell, and he got out, walked around it again, walked up to the dealer, says, what do you want for the car? They told him the price, and he didn't haggle. He, he paid for it, and within an hour, he's driving through the neighborhood with his brand-new BMW. And he drives for about an hour, taking in the sights and the sounds and loving what he had just purchased. And he said to himself, I, I want to look at it the outside again. So he pulls off to the side of the road, parks right next to the sidewalk, and he opens up his door and a car comes by and just blows the door right off. And the, gar the car just keeps going. And a police officer happens to come by and sees what has happened and starts taking the report. And the entire time that the police officer's taking the report, this yuppie is just complaining. Man, a brand new BMW, and it's, I've only had it for about an hour. What a waste. And he goes on and on and on. And every time the police officer would ask a question, he just kept bellyaching about the car. And finally, the, petty, the, the police officer says, man, you, you yuppies, all you ever think about is material goods. You don't even realize that when the, guy, the car came by and took the door, it also took your arm off with it. And the guy looks down at his shoulder, and sure enough, the arm's gone. He looks at the police officer, looks at his shoulder, looks at the police officer, and then he starts crying. My Rolex, my Rolex. What happened to my Rolex? Time. Time. Seconds. Minutes. Hours. Days. Months, years, time, a lifetime, a long life, a life cut short, an eternity, an eternity in heaven with God, an eternity in hell, in the torment throughout all eternity. Many philosophers, theologians, and God-fearing men and women have pondered this word time. Maybe you, like me, you've thought about time. Will we ever be able to travel back in time? Will we ever be able to go ahead of everybody else in time and find out who wins the World Series and then come back and maybe wager on it? 
We ponder time, and yet throughout the centuries we have all within our own area of time been in the same time continuum. It, it travels the same for all of us. We're moving forward in time. King David pondered the issue of time, and at conclusion he pinned Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, where he says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Professor Van Gill, International Bible College, defined wisdom as knowing the end of your ways. Foolishness is built up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction removes it far from them. Therefore, wisdom is knowing the end of the ways the child misbehaves, and the correction tells them that the end of this behavior produces this result. Wisdom is knowing the end of our ways. So Psalms 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to know the end of our ways. The Apostle Paul pondered the subject of time when he admonished the Ephesian church, and after pondering this, he writes to them, concluding, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Pay attention, be careful, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days, they're evil, therefore, and if it's therefore, what's it therefore? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wisdom, walking, time, evil days, time, my time, my lifetime, my will, is it possible that my will, my life can be converted into being used, my life to accomplish God's will? Paul certainly believed this. The subject of time captured the attention of St. Augustine in the year 430 AD. He's one of those early church fathers, post-biblical church fathers, and he perhaps more than anybody else wrote on the subject of time. And he said things like this, that everybody knows what time is until you try to define it. People can measure time. They, they can't really define it. They, they, can, they can define speed. They can define distance. All of those things measured by time. But how do we really define time? St. Augustine could never really define time, but he, he just wrote prolifically about the subject of time. He pondered our existence and what we do with time. Augustine, he, he says it's a gift from God. And then he goes on to say that prior to the creation, there was no need for time because God being uh, who he is, he's, he's basically in his essence unmovable and in his being, he, 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 he just did not need time. But when he created man and man fell, there was need for time. And so he concluded that time has but one purpose and it applies really to humans. And that is that time serves a purpose of change. Time is God's gift to give us opportunity to change. Augustine defined time as change or the purpose of time to change. Time was and is the tool that God has given humans to bring about change in the world. Augustine argued this, that if time is in fact given to us to bring about change, then if people ask, what's God's will for my life? He says, the most basic understanding of God's will is to ask the question, what in my life needs to change? I'm a sinner. I need to change. I need a Savior. It's God's will that I 
find the Savior, that I ask him to save my life. Change, time is given. So in bigger things, if people are struggling, what's my will? Augustine would say, you simply have to ask the question, what around you needs to change? What things are not yet? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Find those things and change them, Augustine would say. But does this really hold up to theology? Again, he's a post-biblical uh, uh, a communicator of, of ideas. Well, I think so, because if I go back to that key passage that we just read that's in Ephesians, and we read it again, and now we take this, if time, in fact, is the tool that God has given us to bring about change, then let's ask that question. Let's read this verse again. Look carefully, Paul says, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. There's a difference here. There's a change in the way that we walk. Wisdom, knowing the end of our ways. How are we walking with the end of our ways in mind? Therefore, let's use our time in the best way possible, bearing in mind the end of our ways, because the days are evil. And therefore, there can be a change that might take place in our days. We're not victims of the circumstance, but rather things can be changed because Christ is king and because he's king it can be changed therefore we have to ask God what is your will what things around me need to be changed first inside within my family and all the things around me somebody wants to ask me pastor if you could have any kind of church what kind of church would you want to have and I said it's very simple I want a first chronicles chapter 12 verse 32 membership let me read that it says, for the tribes of Issachar. I want an Issachar church. For the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. And all of these men understood the signs of the times. They understood the things that needed to change. There's change coming. And because things are changing around us, it says they knew the best course for Israel to take. Do we know in the changing times that we're in, the best course for the church to take, both individual church as well as the church collectively. David, Paul, Augustine, they were not alone in their quest for understanding time. Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield, men who understood the times in which they lived and they committed their lifetime to usher in the greatest spiritual revival that has ever taken place in the Americas called the Great America, or the Great Awakening. And this was in America prior to it really becoming the nation. This was during the colonial period of our nation. In fact, because of what these three men, they influenced the founding fathers of our nation. Our nation didn't become a nation until July the 4th of 1776. And historians tell us that on that day that they signed the Declaration of Independence that they got on their knees and they began to pray and ask God to lead this nation as he willed. Well, that happened because of these men. And these are only three of about seven men that ushered in the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield. Let me talk to you about these three men. George Whitfield, he had one eye turned inward. They called him the cross-eyed preacher. And George Whitfield, he was a Britisher who would come to the United States three times he came to the United States. And he had a way of bringing the characters of the Bible to life. He would talk about Moses and he would talk about Abraham. And, and every time that he spoke and the descriptions that he gave, it was like you were standing in front of these biblical characters. And these, he, he, he pulled out the God of these men and women that, that served God passionately. In fact, when he was in 
Boston, preaching in the Boston Commons, 25,000 people showed up. In that day that he was there, there were not 25,000 residents in Boston. That means that there were more people from the outside that came in. It overwhelmed the restaurants and the, and the places to stay. In fact, uh, the revival was so great that people would open up their homes and entertain complete strangers. And then when he went from there to Philadelphia, 700 men on horseback followed him to go and hear him preach again in Philadelphia. 35,000 came. In fact, he had opportunity to, to talk to, to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a skeptic. And apparently after George Whitfield had talked to him, Benjamin Franklin became a believer, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, it says that uh, in, in some of the history books, it says that Benjamin Franklin, he commissioned the building of a very large auditorium, primarily thinking that when George Whitfield would come to preach, people would have a place, a place to sit. And John Wesley on horseback, as he traveled around, riding sermons on horseback, going from town to town and establishing eldership in each one of those towns. And, and people would come by and they would preach. And out of that, of course, today, the Methodist church uh, is formed that way. Interestingly enough, George Whitfield believed in the Methodist movement, but he was Calvinist. John Wesley was Armenian. He also believed in the Methodist uh, movement. And Jonathan Edwards... He was a Calvinist, but didn't quite believe in the Methodist movement. He was a Puritan and very much believed in the establishment of the church, very different than the way John Wesley did. But nonetheless, all of these men addressed the problems of their day. Let me talk to you about Jonathan Edwards. He was 13 years old when he went to Yale School of Divinity. It was a boarding school during that time, and <clears throat> he went there and he committed himself to Christ. When he was 17, he graduated from Yale with the Masters of Divinity. Shortly after that, he was asked if he would be the pastor of a church in New York, which today is just a few blocks down from the New York Stock Exchange. There's a little plaque there, monument there. You can see where Jonathan Edwards, his first church after graduating from Yale. But when he was still in school, at the age of 17, he began to write what is today known as the 70 Resolutions. He, he garnished these these uh, biblical principles, and then he began to write them out in very meaningful ways to him. And he, he committed himself to these 70 principles. There would be 70 principles that would guide his life. And I encourage you, if you ever have a chance, Google the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. <clears throat> the first four of these 70, he, he, he makes these resolves about who God is. He, he declares things like what Pastor Matt has done Christ is king. And, and the first four of these resolutions talk about the greatness of who God is as it relates to him. But on the fifth one that I want to focus on, on his fifth resolution, Jonathan Edwards writes, resolved, never lose one moment of time, but seize the time to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. And this was written in 1720 at the age of 17. Never lose one moment of time, but seize the time to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. A couple of years later, he was writing all these resolutions. He came to, what, or I came to reading his 63rd resolution. Now, I'm going to couple the two of these together, and I want you to pick up on this. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to summarize it. He wrote, on the supposition, supposing that there never was to be one individual in the world at any one time, if there, could, if there could only be one person in the world at any one time or one generation who was pr uh, properly a complete Christian, 
in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all of my might to be that one who should live in my time. In other words, he said, if God was to grant all of his anointed to fall upon one person for one generation at one time, I'm going to live in such a way that I would be that one man that could influence the generation. Couple this resolve, I want to be Christ on this earth. Not the Christ, but I want to represent him here on earth and I want to use my time, the lifespan that I have, to advance the values of the kingdom of God. Isn't that powerful? It was the year 1734. Jonathan Edwards, in November of 1734, he had preached two sermons back to back on justification by faith. Hundreds of people have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now what? What do you do with him? So in December of the same year, in fact, the picture that you see there, he's, he's preaching to this crowd. It's a, it was a powerful moment in his particular ministry. But in December of 1734, he preached a sermon to a very large crowd titled, The Preciousness of Time. And I, wanna, I just want to draw from his sermon notes here. He actually has like, well, 10 points like Matt had and everybody else had. So I'm not going to bring out all 10 points, but I'm going to bring quite a bit of it. But Jonathan Edwards, in the middle of his sermon, he invites the audience, come with me and let's visit a man on his deathbed. He's about to pass from this life to the next. And what do you think, Jonathan Edwards says, is on his mind? Do you think he's thinking about the next business venture, what land he might buy or how he might make more money? No, he's got but one thing on his mind. What will it be like when I pass from this life to the next. That moment, what will it be like? Or he's thinking what I wouldn't give to be able to come back and redo some of the things that had been done in this lifetime, things that I would do better, things that I would have done different. He's thinking about time. And then Jonathan Edwards invites the audience to come and from a distance look down into the pit of hell and look at the men and women that are there in eternal torment. And what do you think is on their mind? They're thinking of how incredibly long eternity is in this torment. And they're thinking about what they would not give to come back to this life and have but one moment to make things right with God that they not spend eternity in that place. Jonathan Edwards understood that time had to be used for the kingdom of God. And on that sermon that he preached, the preciousness of time in the year 1734, four things that he brought out that I think are key for us today. First of all, time is precious. We need to respect it and we need to know it. And he says this, happy or miserable, eternity depends on the good or ill improvement on it. Good old-fashioned English. What he's ultimately saying is that what we do here on earth will result in either crowns of glory, robes of righteousness, or what happens throughout eternity in hell. And I quote, eternity depends on the improvement of time, but once time of life is gone, when once death has come, we have no more to do with time. There's no possibility of obtaining the restoration of it or another space in which to prepare for eternity. He goes on, time is very short. Once time is gone, he says, it's gone forever. No pains, no cost will ever 
recover it, 1734. He went on, we are uncertain of its continuance. When it's past, it cannot be recovered. He argued that wealth, you can have it, lose it, and you can have it again. Health, you can have it, lose it, and you can have it again. But time, once time is gone, it is gone forever. You can never go back in time. So he, 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 he echoes, or I should say the same sentiment is echoed by Charles Spurgeon. We've got to bring Charles Spurgeon into light, correct, Mr. Hooper? Serve God by doing common actions in the heavenly spirit, he said. And then in your daily calling, if it only leaves you cracks and crevices of time, if you're so busy with all of the everyday things that you do and all it leaves you is little tiny cracks and crevices of time, Spurgeon says, fill them up with godly service. Rick Warren, time is your most precious gift because you only have a set amount of it. But sadly, Jonathan Edwards argued, some should be worried about how they have spent their time. Some have spent it in idleness and some have spent it in wickedness. Some have spent it in worldly pursuits while neglecting their souls. You cannot neglect the care of your soul. Jonathan Edwards, he writes, how little is the preciousness of time considered and how little sense of it do the greater part of mankind seem to have and to how little good purpose do many spend their time. There is nothing more precious and yet nothing of which men are more prodigal. Jonathan Edwards, 1734. You know, I believe that you and I, if we take on the same attitude of John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, if we would understand that we live in a time period, a generation, and if, if we understood that, that, that we have a, a responsibility to compel our churches, the followers of our church, to do these two things, that the spiritual awakening can take place, if we would compel our church that they're going to be accountable to God for their time. So they need to use their time for the kingdom of God. We, we, we don't really tell the people that they're going to be accountable to God for their time. It's not a subject that we're really talking a great deal of. Uh, of. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he, he wanted to encapsulate his time for the kingdom of God. And we asked the question, are we really compelling, convincing our church people to use their time for the kingdom of God? And are we really compelling our church people to consider how much time we have already lost? Whether you're young or you're old, I can't go back. I can't, I can't, there's no mulligans when it comes to time. What I have left, I want to use for the kingdom of God. Let me introduce you to this man by the, by the name of Tristan Harris. He's a former Google design ethicist. And he resigned Google and founded the Centers for Human Technology. His organizational goal is to align technology to our humanity. I didn't realize this until I read this particular article. Apparently, Google, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all of the live streams like Netflix and Primetime and all these other types of technologies, apparently they have today technology ethicists. So in 2016, uh, Tristan, he, he understood this idea that these algorithms that were being written, and here's how this works. 
Apparently, as you're looking at any feed on your cell phone, as you're looking through that, if you look at a video, apparently the algorithm knows how long you're looking at this video. So if I look at airplanes or, or a car, if I look at a car and, and it captures my attention, the algorithm is pacing how long I'm looking at this video and it starts to feed me more videos of the things that I stare at the longest. So it doesn't take long before it's feeding me everything I want to look at. And pretty soon it's cars or airplanes, or cars, or airplanes, or whatever it is that you happen to look at. And he understood this, that children were, were basically subject to the same algorithm. They look at a bicycle. And the next thing, they're looking at a kid jumping off of a cliff with a bicycle and a parachute. And next thing you know, the kid is wanting to jump off of the cliff himself with a bicycle but doesn't have a parachute. And so he, he realized that what was happening is that these algorithms had, had really no control and that mom is telling kids to go to bed and they're sneaking their phones into bed and they're looking at bicycles with people jumping off of clips or other things that they're being constantly fed with. And so in 2016, Tristan started a movement called Time Well Spent in response to the concerns surrounding the effects of technology and social media on our lives. And this started in January of 2016. By June of 2016, all of the algorithms in these major companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, they wrote code in to identify the age of the person that was viewing to limit, essentially, what the feed was feeding to younger people. You may be asking, man, what, what a leap. Why did Pastor go from Jonathan Edwards to, to this guy that he may not even be a Christian? Because I want to challenge you with a passage found in Luke chapter 16, verse 8 through 10. And let me read that to you real quick. It's about the unjust steward who was accused of mismanaging his master's goods. So the master says, you're going to give some accounts. And the steward, knowing that he had not done well with the goods that he had been given, he, he can't go back and undo what he had done. So he began to look for people who still owed his master money. And he used his position to basically forgive the debt. How much do you owe the master? Cut that in half. How much do you owe the master? Let's, let's cut that debt down. And when the master found out about it, in verse 8 it says, uh, verse 7 it says that the master commended the unjust steward for he acted wisely or shrewdly. And then verse 8, and it's a mesmerizing verse, Jesus stepping out of the parable, talking to his disciples about the parable, he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in the dealing with their own generation, they understand the problems of their generation and they're dealing with it. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, because it will fail, they will receive you into eternal dwellings, time, eternity, minutes, management, God's will, verse 10 one who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. In other words, the question is, I've blown it. What am I going to do from this moment and on? I'm going to be shrewd. And I'm going to find out what things in my life need to change. And what can I change around the world today? And if I'm supposed to be the salt of the earth, if I'm supposed to be a light that is not hidden under a, a bushel, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say what things need to change around me. It was the year 1741, September the 9th of 1741. And this may surprise you, but there was a huge schism in Yale. You see, the Great Awakening, people preaching about hell and 
hellfire and brimstone and God's judgment and you know, uh, uh, falling to the mercy of an angry God. These, these preachers were preaching these subjects and, and people were weeping and they were coming to Christ. And there was in Yale what, uh, a group that was called the old light. And then there was the new light. And so this great awakening was bringing in primarily young men and women into the faith. And all of these preachers were addressing subjects like these young men are night walking. They leave their houses at night and go off and do things and meet up with people and all of this. And so they were addressing the social ills of that particular generation. And Yale was about to shut down over this division. It was massive. The Great Awakening, they said, it is nothing but emotionalism. It is nothing but a facade. You're, you're, you're basically manipulating people into the kingdom. It's all about these different things. So the old light was saying, no, there needs to be more reverence when it comes to the things of God, more of a solid decision. The young light was saying, look, the, the people are coming to Christ. They're being baptized. They're receiving him. And Yale was divided right down the middle. And it seems that by God's divine providence, the guest speaker at the commencement of that particular school year, September the 9th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards was asked to preach. And he knew that this thing was just gaining momentum to divide. The church was being divided. And he preached on the subject, the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. What does God do when he touches a generation? Emotions may be different than the old light may see. There may be things that will happen. Of course, he said the devil may show up and the devil may manipulate or he may mimic. He may do the things. But he ultimately was able to bring a resolution. And really the conclusion was that we need to let God speak and do whatever will bring the next generation into the faith. And the old light and the new light at least agreed on this. Let's let God do what God needs to do in this generation. David Coote, Emmanuel Tabernacle. God with us was the cry of his generation. John Bell, building here on this site. We want to see revival, revival, temple. In fact, we called it in error RT once, and Brother Bell was quick to say it's called Revival Temple, not RT. He wanted to see revival come, and then David Bell, who just wanted to worship the Lord and see people discover their destiny in Christ. The cry of his generation was Destiny Church, so I'm not surprised The Pastor Matt Bell seeing the ills of a society that have long renounced the authority of Christ wants a church to be a beacon that our God our Christ, he is king. So I started out by talking about a man who bought a BMW. Normally it stands for British Motor Works. But what if we are yuppies that want to use our time, our energy, and our resources for be my will? And we're squandering time, energy, and resources on my will but it should be rather, not my will be done, but thy will be done. The Bible tells us it's better to go into heaven without an eye if the eye offends us. It's better to go into heaven without a hand if the hand offends us. And if I am using my time and my energies and my resources for be my will, I pray that a car comes by and not only takes and dismantles whatever that money's being used for, and take with me my measurement of time with it, 
because I would much rather, like Jonathan Edwards, measure my time, my energy, and resources in the service of the king than for it to be squandered here. It's not be my will with the time, energy, and resources, but be thy will. Be thy will, because Christ is king. If you believe that, will you say amen? amen. Life is short. Death is certain. And eternity is very, very long time. It's time for us to level up in time management to rejoice that your eternal reward for kingdom used of your time, it is eternity. In the famous words of that movie, what you do here on earth echoes throughout eternity. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning, and I want you to bow your heads today. And uh, I just invite you to just posture your hands in a way to just say, Lord, I surrender to you, and I want to receive more of you. Lord, I want to be one of those that are wise in my generation. I don't want the credit to go to the world, that the world is wiser in their own dealings with their generation than the children of light. Lord, we want to be children of light who are seeking your will. And Lord, we want to walk not as foolish but as wise because we live in an evil day. Therefore, Lord, we commit ourselves. We surrender our time, our energies, our resources, not to be my will, but to be thy will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody says, Amen. Amen.